Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing meditation, developing your practice. This is chapter 11 in our group learning program using the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. Over the course of the last two and a half months, I've been slowly introducing meditation to you in our Wednesday sessions. And of course, we've touched on it in various discussions that we've had throughout that last two and a half, three months time frame. But today, we're actually going to be diving into meditation in depth, just as it is in chapter 11. We're going to be going through this chapter and exploring it in depth. There's a lot of things that we've already been introducing and sharing, so there's going to be some things that we may have touched on before, but today we're going to go into it in a lot more detail to ensure that you have the information that you need to develop your practice and ensure that you have the opportunity to ask any and all questions that you have at this time related to meditation. Thank you for coming. Thank you for joining our class today. And thank you for being interested in learning about meditation and Gautama Buddha's teachings, because it's meditation that's going to be that active, fundamental foundation that's going to be training the mind. We're using meditation and daily practice as part of our life practice. It's essentially a practice within your life practice. So it's very important that you learn and understand meditation and you deepen your practice more and more and more. So let's get started discussing this practice of meditation and the various types of meditations and all the other aspects of developing your practice that you're going to need in order to train the mind towards this enlightened mental state. What I oftentimes like to do is share teachings with you directly from Gautama Buddha because It's one thing for me to share teachings with you and for you to kind of have confidence in me that I'm sharing teachings with you that come directly from Gautama Buddha. But as I share often in this program and throughout all the places that I teach is I'm not interested in students believing me because if you believe me, that's not going to help you. What you need to do is you need to learn and understand the teachings, then reflect on those teachings and put them into practice so that you can see the truth for yourself and thus you will have wisdom. It's this newfound wisdom that you acquire that's going to awaken the mind to this enlightened mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It's only through this newfound wisdom that the mind will start operating differently and start conducting itself differently in the world to eliminate 
these discontent feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, boredom, loneliness, guilt, shame, fears, jealousy, resentment, all these different discontent feelings can be eliminated. So rather than have you believe me, even that Gautama Buddha taught meditation or that he thought it would be something that would be beneficial or that it's even part of this path, I would rather just start off our discussion today and actually showing you just a small, 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 small portion of what Gautama Buddha was sharing related to meditation. This way, you know the truth for yourself and this helps you to gain wisdom. So I've grabbed two kind of smaller quotes of Gautama Buddha's and then kind of like a, a little bit more of a content on his teachings about meditation. But remember, this is such a small little portion and there's so much more that he shares in relation to meditation. But just to get you started to understand that Gautama Buddha indeed shared meditation as part of the path to enlightenment, one of his famous quotes is meditate or lest you will regret it later. This is actually part of a larger quote where he says bhikkhus, which are his male ordained students, don't be negligent lest you will regret it later. Okay. Gautama Buddha didn't use fear, guilt, or shame in order to teach and motivate people to learn and practice his teachings. In fact, Part of what you're eliminating from the mind, that discontentedness, is you're eliminating guilt, shame, and fears. He wasn't interested in using guilt, shame, or fears in order to motivate people to learn and practice his teachings. But if there's kind of like one quote that I would say where he kind of really shared like, hey, you know, you really need to be practicing this stuff and progressing on this path, it would be this one quote. This is kind of as close as it gets to Gautama Buddha really kind of encouraging people in terms of helping you understand that it's really important that you progress in learning and practicing these teachings. So here he says, meditate or less you will regret it later. Well, what is he talking about regret it later? We can only kind of guess or kind of think for ourselves what he was actually really referring to. And there's a couple of things that come to my mind when I think about that. Less you will regret it later. If we don't meditate and we don't train the mind on this path, we know that we're going to continue to experience discontentedness. There's going to be continued sadness, anger, frustration, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, all of these discontent feelings, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, all this discontentness that makes life such a big feat and somewhat struggling to get through life, you're still going to experience that if you're not learning and practicing these teachings to liberate the mind to attain enlightenment. So yes, if we don't meditate, if we're negligent, if we're complacent and we don't meditate, we will regret it later when you experience those discontent feelings. So by learning and practicing these teachings to include meditation, you will gradually eliminate those discontent feelings and therefore you won't have any regrets because you will have learned and practiced the teachings to train the mind. Also, we know that if we don't attain enlightenment in this lifetime, there's going to be rebirth. Whether it's rebirth in one of the lower realms 
right back into the human realm or even into the heavenly realm, which isn't desirable because there's still existence. So if we don't meditate and we don't attain enlightenment, we will regret it when we're reborn countless more times, particularly if we're reborn into one of the lower realms. Gautama Buddha never used that as a way of scaring people or fearing people or guilting them into learning and practicing his teachings. But I would say if we were reborn into the lower realms, yeah, we will regret it because being reborn into one of those lower realms is described as a prison because it's so difficult and challenging to get back to the human realm in order to have the opportunity to attain enlightenment. Because in those lower realms, you're unable to attain enlightenment. It's only in the human realm or the heavenly realm that we're actually able to attain enlightenment. And it's the human realm that has the perfect conditions that are the motivating factors and the ability to cultivate our consciousness that we actually are most often motivated to attain enlightenment. So through meditating and learning and practicing these teachings, then we won't regret it because if we attain enlightenment, we'll enjoy the rest of this life with a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind where we no longer experience discontentedness and we won't be reborn at the end of this life. So therefore, we won't regret it later. A second quote that Gautama Buddha shares that I think is really, really telling about how he described the importance of learning and practicing his teachings is he said, a pot without a stand is easy to tip over. Well, the pot is the mind in the stand is your meditation practice, essentially your life practice, the entire life practice, which meditation is part of. So if a pot isn't on a stand, it's easy to tip over. It needs the stability of that stand. The more you learn and practice these teachings, the more you learn and develop your meditation practice, the wider and wider this stand becomes and the more stable that it becomes. So it's less difficult to tip over this mind. But as long as you aren't learning these teachings, as long as you aren't practicing meditation, it's really easy for someone to tip over your mind, for you to experience discontentedness. Your mind can be shaken up with some of the smallest little things in life. But through learning and practicing these teachings, you create this stand that becomes wider and wider and wider. And therefore, the mind becomes more and more stable and you become peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy. It becomes unshakable. The mind becomes unshakable. These are some of the words that were used by Gautama Buddha. And you can experience this for yourself because as you gain this wisdom, not believing what your teacher says, not believing what Gautama Buddha says, but actually learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings to see the truth and gain this wisdom, nobody can ever shake you off of that wisdom because you know the truth. And I used an analogy at the very beginning of this program talking about Santa Claus, where at one time you might have grown up believing in certain mythical people. And one of the common ones in the world is Santa Claus. A lot of people will believe in Santa Claus, but eventually you learn the truth and you gain the wisdom that Santa Claus doesn't actually exist. 
And at this point in your life, your mind is unshakable on whether Santa Claus exists or not. It doesn't matter how many Christmas songs you hear. It doesn't matter how many Santa Claus you see dressed up in red and white costumes and outfits. You will never, ever believe in Santa Claus because your mind is unshakable and you know that Santa Claus doesn't exist. Well, what happens with Gautama Buddha's teachings is as you learn and practice his teachings, seeing the truth and gaining the wisdom, the mind becomes more and more and more unshakable. And if you've been learning with me or the Buddhist teachings anywhere at any point, you should know things like the three universal truths, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. You should have some intellectual understanding of these teachings. But as you move them into practice and you observe them for yourself, the mind understands these truths, gains wisdom, and then becomes unshakable. So for something like impermanence, right? This is kind of a simple, very basic, very beginning foundational teaching that I share and Gautama Buddha shares as part of his teachings. Well, there's no one that could ever convince you that something is permanent. If you've truly learned this teaching, you've observed it to be true, and you have that wisdom, nobody could ever convince you that something is actually permanent again, because you already have gone through the period of reflection to see the truth for yourself. So the mind or the pot is unshakable on this topic. And there's many different topics in Gautama Buddha's teachings that as you learn and practice, you get this wider and wider stand, then the mind becomes unshakable. And that's what he's talking about here is developing a life practice as well as meditation, which is part of this life practice. And then this longer quote that he shares is a quote that really draws out meditation by itself. He says here, Bhikkhus, there is one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to dischantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. What is that one thing? Mindfulness of breathing. This is that one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to dischantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. Here, when he talks about mindfulness of breathing, this is what I call breathing mindfulness meditation. So here in this teaching, he's sharing with people, there's just one thing that leads to cessation. Cessation is the elimination or abandonment. And what he's talking about is the cessation of discontentedness the elimination of discontentedness. There's just one thing that leads to the elimination of discontentedness, to peace, right? A peaceful mind, to direct knowledge. Direct knowledge is wisdom because what he's saying here is, you know, you need to learn the truth and through practicing meditation, it leads to direct knowledge. You can see the truth for yourself. And through that wisdom, you get to enlightenment, to nibbana. What is that one thing? Mindfulness of breathing. So here you can see 
in just these short little quotes that I'm sharing with you that Gautama Buddha absolutely taught meditation and it was a central primary focus in this path to enlightenment. It's part of the Eightfold Path and it's the eighth step, but it is a central foundational aspect of his teachings. You wouldn't be able to meditate your way to enlightenment, but you also wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment without meditation. So learning and practicing this path to get to enlightenment involves a lot more than just meditation, but you also wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without meditation. There's a lot more to learn, but this is really a central practice as part of learning and practicing this path to progress to enlightenment. So that's why it's really important that you dive into meditation and you really understand it quite deeply and you practice it and you refine it and you get better and better and better at it. And through this program in the last two and a half, three months, I've been sharing breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation, which we're going to touch on today, but we're also going to go into two other types of meditation that you can perhaps use if needed as well. So let's go ahead and talk about meditation in general in order to continue this discussion, talking about the basics of meditation. So in order to discuss meditation, let's actually define what meditation is because we don't want to assume anything here. We want to ensure that we build this foundation, even just starting with understanding what is meditation. The definition that I give in this chapter 11 is meditation is a technique actively used to train the mind to eliminate or cultivate various qualities of mind during dedicated, independent, purposeful training sessions, right? So dedicated, independent, purposeful training sessions where we're eliminating certain qualities from the mind or we're cultivating certain qualities in the mind. I share this because there's some places where you might see that people talk about going to walk the dog and meditating or going for a jog and meditating or going for a drive in the car and meditating or going gardening or some other activity and meditating. But the reality of the matter is, is while those activities may help calm the mind, they may help to relax the mind, they might be enjoyable activities that help somebody kind of regain their composure and calmness you know, this walking, jogging, walking the dog, this gardening, driving a car, these things might help someone regain their composure and calmness, but it's not actually meditating. It's walking the dog, jogging, gardening, or these other activities. If that's all somebody ever did was those activities, they wouldn't be meditating. So that's why it's really important for me to point out that in order to meditate, it needs to be an active, dedicated, independent, purposeful training session to eliminate certain qualities and cultivate certain qualities in the mind. I encourage people to do activities that they enjoy. That's really helpful. But if that's all you did and you never did these active, dedicated, independent, purposeful training sessions, you wouldn't be training the mind towards enlightenment 
with meditation. Meditation is this practice with inside of your life practice. So it's important to understand what meditation is and what meditation isn't. So meditation is this practice that you're going to be learning and doing on a daily basis, a dedicated, committed practice to train the mind to eliminate certain qualities and cultivate certain qualities in the mind. And we're going to talk about those when we get to each individual meditation. I'm going to be sharing with you what is being eliminated from the mind and what is being cultivated into the mind as part of that dedicated, independent, purposeful training session. And when we talk about these individual meditations, you'll be able to see very clearly that driving the car isn't meditating or walking the dog isn't meditating. Jogging is not meditating. These are other activities that we're engaged in, but it's not meditation in terms of training the mind to eliminate or cultivate various qualities in the mind. In terms of learning meditation and practicing meditation, it's very important to have a meditation teacher. You would be unable to learn meditation entirely on your own without any guidance from teachers. Now, there's plenty of places where you can read a book, you can watch a YouTube video, you can do these other things in order to kind of gain some basic familiarity with meditation. But in order to really deepen your practice and get the most benefit out of it, you need a teacher. A meditation teacher should be well experienced and well versed in meditation itself, having developed a deep meditation practice for themselves and experienced what that is like. So then as you're developing your meditation practice, you can ask the teacher questions in order to get help to further inform your practice and further develop your practice along this path to enlightenment. There's only one type of individual that would be able to completely learn and practice this path without any help whatsoever from teachers and actually attain enlightenment and progress on this path. And that's an actual Buddha. A Buddha is someone who's independently progressing on this journey without any help of any teachers or guides and can actually progress and attain enlightenment without the help of teachers. And the last Buddha currently known to the world existed over 2,500 years ago. There hasn't been a Buddha since his lifetime. And once a Buddha awakens under their own independent journey, the teachings that lead to their awakening, that person will then share them during their lifetime, helping countless other people to attain enlightenment during their lifetime. And they will then leave the teachings in a condition that once they die, lots and lots and lots of other people can attain enlightenment once they actually die. So that's kind of the three primary criteria that makes a Buddha a Buddha. There's other criteria as well, but the three primary criteria are that a Buddha will awaken their mind through an independent journey, learning and practicing the teachings through their own realizations and attain enlightenment on their own. Second, they will then share those teachings that they discovered that led to their own awakening with countless people during their lifetime that leads to the awakening of countless other people to attain enlightenment during the Buddha's lifetime. And then the third criteria is that they will leave the teachings 
and people that are already enlightened, once that Buddha dies, those people and those teachings will continue to help countless people attain enlightenment after the death of that person who would then be considered a Buddha. The Buddha himself very rarely, if ever, even referred to himself as a Buddha. So it wasn't until he actually died that people looked back and actually really started calling him a Buddha. He referred to himself as what we call the Tathagata. This has various meanings that we're not entirely sure 100% of what it actually means, but it kind of means one who is neither coming or going or one who shares the truth. This is kind of what we think the word Tathagata means, and that's how the Buddha actually referred to himself during his lifetime. A lot of other people refer to him just as teacher or master teacher or aesthetic Gautama. So people didn't refer to him as the Buddha necessarily during his lifetime. The people who learned and studied with him, they knew he was a Buddha because they knew him very closely and they could see their own mind was awakening to enlightenment. But where we are today, 2,500 years after his death, knowing that he was a Buddha for sure because of all the various people that have attained enlightenment after his death, during his lifetime, there was only a certain group of people that really truly knew that he was enlightened and that group kept growing larger and larger and larger. And there was only a certain group of people that understood that he was actually a Buddha. So in order for you to learn and practice meditation and all the other teachings to progress on this path, you need a teacher to help you because you need to ask questions. You need to seek guidance. You need to understand these teachings and you can't ask questions to a book. You need an actual person to be able to ask questions too. So it's important that you find a really good teacher to share the teachings with you and then you can seek guidance and ask questions to get help on this path. Any good legitimate meditation teacher should be practicing what it is that they teach and have a very deep wealth of knowledge and wisdom in which to be able to share the teachings with you so that when you ask questions, they should be able to help you to gain wisdom, to understand the truth. And you should be able to see in a relatively short period of time how you can learn their teachings, you can practice those and discover the truth, gaining wisdom for yourself. And you should see the condition of your mind gradually improving. You should see the condition of the mind going from anger down to frustration, annoyance, irritation, just kind of slight dislikes. And you should see that the mind's becoming more and more peaceful as you're learning and practicing the teachings. This is how you know that you're learning the truth. If you're not seeing this gradual progression, this gradual extinguishing of discontentedness, then you need to talk with your teacher and make sure you understand the teachings, make sure you get guidance and make sure that you seek understanding and clarification on anything that you may not understand so that you can see these gradual progression of the mind. And if you're not seeing that, again, you need to seek guidance from your teacher. And then over time, if you're seeking guidance and trying to dig into the teachings and your teacher isn't able to help you and you're not seeing any progress, then that's the time to get a new teacher. And you should talk with your teacher and just let them know that, hey, you're gonna move on and 
learn with another teacher because that would be the respectful thing to do with your teacher. But if the teacher is sharing teachings with you that aren't helping you, you got to take responsibility for that. And rather than just completely leave the teacher because you don't understand, or maybe the teacher isn't sharing the teachings with you in a way that really connects with you, you've got to do your due diligence and make sure that you try to clarify anything that is being misunderstood. And that requires a personal conversation and probably multiple personal conversations with your teacher to understand more. Any teacher that is sharing teachings with you, they shouldn't be trying to push their views, their opinions, or their way of practice onto you. They should be guiding you. They should be encouraging you. They should be supporting you. If you have a teacher that's trying to very rigidly push what they do onto the students and trying to get this exact performance out of the student in terms of meditation, then the teacher isn't understanding impermanence. This practice of meditation and all the other practices aren't about doing everything exactly the way your teacher does it because everything is impermanent and there's no way for what your teacher does to be done exactly the same way by you. So in terms of meditation, when we start talking about meditation positions, if a teacher is trying to impress upon you that they have this exact way that the body needs to be placed in certain meditation positions and they're trying to force your body to do what they do, this isn't the way to teach meditation. What a good meditation teacher should be doing is not trying to force or push what they do onto their students, but a good meditation teacher, in my opinion, should be helping to guide a student and find what meditation positions are working for the student. So they should have many different options of ways to help you get comfortable in meditation that are going to be guiding you to find solutions rather than kind of pushing or forcing you to do certain things that they feel are right or wrong. So you should be feeling like you're being guided and encouraged and supported. This is a teacher who's really helping you rather than somebody who's just forcing or trying to get an exact performance out of you. So when you look for a teacher, look for these kind of qualities, as well as look at chapter three. There's a section there towards the end of chapter three where I talk about how to determine if a teacher has attained enlightenment. And when you combine what I just shared in, and also what I share in this chapter 11, along with what you see in chapter three, you should be able to find a good teacher who you feel is able to help you to learn and practice these teachings along this path. If you're interested in learning with me, you're already doing that through these classes and the resources that I share. I'm pleased to help you and guide you along this path. But if at any point you feel like you need to find another teacher or seek out another teacher, I've provided some guidance and the resources to help you figure out how to actually do that. But a teacher, is highly important to help you learn and progress on this path. And then the last thing that I'll share here before I open things up for questions is about meditation positions. There's four meditation positions that we use. And the reason why is because the body can't permanently be in one particular position. 
you're going to need these different positions at different times in your practice. And there's different reasons why you might use one position versus the other. The four positions are seated, lying, standing, and walking. Most frequently, people learn meditation in the seated position. This is the position that's most accessible for most people. And this is the one that a lot of people choose to primarily use and practice and definitely when you're first starting to learn. Traditionally, people sit on the floor when they actually learn meditation in the seated position. In doing so, what you'll notice is if you put cushions under your rear and get your rear up in the air, it will lessen the angle between your hips and also lessen the pressure on your knees and your ankles. So by getting your rear up in the air, you'll find that the body becomes a bit more comfortable during meditation. You don't want to feel pain during meditation. If any time you feel pain during meditation, this is the body telling the mind something's wrong here. This doesn't feel right. And you should make subtle changes to the positioning of the body in order to get comfortable. And if you're going to do the seated position on the floor, then putting cushions under your rear and lifting your rear up in the air will help you to get comfortable so that your hip, your knee, and your ankle is in a comfortable position that doesn't cause pain. Now, if you're grown up in a culture where you spend a lot of time on the floor, you may be able to just sit on the floor without any cushions. But a lot of us haven't actually grown up in a culture where you actually sit on the floor very much. So putting that cushion under your rear and propping you up will help you to feel more comfortable on the floor. And they have different devices nowadays with different heights that you can start maybe at a higher height. And then if you would like to lower it down, you can kind of lower it down with less and less cushions. If for some reason you don't feel comfortable on the floor, or you don't even interested in learning how to meditate on the floor, you can actually learn to meditate in a chair. This is completely fine. It's a seated position that you can use and you can actually sit in a chair. When you do that, your lower body should be stable and your legs and your feet can either be crossed or flat on the floor. It doesn't really matter as long as they're comfortable, but not luxurious. You just want to get to the point where the lower body is completely disengaged and there's no active muscles that are required to sustain the stability of the lower body. The upper body, you want the spine to be erect and you want the muscles in the torso to be engaged and active. This allows the mind to stay active, attentive, and aware during the meditation session. Whereas if you slouch or you lean back in your chair in too much of a relaxed position, then the mind has a tendency to become complacent and therefore it's going to be difficult for you to actively train the mind through that dedicated purposeful training session because it has kind of turned off to a certain degree. But by erecting the spine and engaging the muscles in the torso, it keeps the mind attentive and active. And this will allow you to access it and actually train it to eliminate or cultivate these various mental qualities in the mind. The hands and the arms for the seated position, there's lots of different options here. Gautama Buddha placed his right hand on top of his left and he put his thumbs together and then he placed that in his lap. And if that feels comfortable for you, you can use it. But if for some reason that doesn't feel comfortable and there's going to be people who that doesn't feel comfortable for because 
It's not about permanence. It's not about everybody doing it the same way. So if that doesn't feel comfortable for you, you can put your palms face up. You can put your palms face down on your thighs or your knees or use the armrests of the chair. Whatever feels comfortable for you to once again get to a position where the arms and the hands are disengaged, where there's no muscles that are actively engaged in order to support the actual body. It should only be that middle part of the body that's actually engaged during meditation, but everything else should be completely relaxed. And this would be the seated position. The lying position is another position that can be used in order to meditate. If your torso is painful to sit upright, and if you need to lean back up against a wall or a chair just a little bit in order to take some of the weight off of the torso in the seated position, then that's fine. You can just lean back a little bit. But if that's painful, you may choose to go to the lying position where you can just lie completely flat on your back, face up with your hands and arms out to the side, either palms up or palms down. If you've ever done yoga, this is the resting posture or savat Savasana, I think they call it. I forget. I haven't done yoga for a while, but you guys probably know what I'm talking about. So if you just lay relaxed on the floor, then this is lying position. And it becomes really helpful if your body is painful and you can't sit or use one of the other positions, or if the mind and body are just so tired, the last thing you would think about is actually engaging the upper body to maintain the active attentiveness of the mind. Because when you lie on the floor, every single muscle is completely disengaged. There's no muscle that's engaged whatsoever. It's just completely relaxed. And this can be a good position for those situations. It can also be a good situation to use this position if these other positions aren't accessible. And I think about if you're maybe laying in a hospital bed where you can't sit in a chair or there's some other situation where you're lying down and it's not possible for you to use one of these other positions of seated, standing, or walking. So lying position can be utilized in those situations. If you've got an active practice where you're actively training the mind in these other postures and you're doing that on a regular daily basis, you might actually choose to meditate prior to going to sleep in order to help induce sleep. You wouldn't want that to be your only time that you actually meditate, but if you're having trouble sleeping and you've built up a regular daily practice and you're doing that regularly throughout your life, then if you're having trouble falling asleep, you could perhaps use the lying position laying in bed to actually calm the mind and relax it in order to induce sleep. So that's another way that you might choose to use the laying position. Standing position is standing up straight up and down with your arms in front of you, either clasping at the wrist or your arms behind you clasping at the wrist or your arms down along your sides. You're just standing. And this can be another position that you might choose to employ. For example, if you're having trouble sitting or lying, standing might be an option for you. And you can actually rotate these positions at different times during your meditation practice. So if you're doing an elongated meditation session, 
and the body starts to become too painful in the seated position and you're recognizing that you can't get comfortable, but you're still interested in continuing your meditation, rather than end your meditation session, you could move to lying or you can move to standing or even ultimately to walking. So standing position can be used as another option in order to keep the body in a position where it feels comfortable and you can actively train the mind. I've also used this position in situations where I was maybe waiting for a bus or I was waiting in line for something and it was a really long line that I was going to be there for a really long time. You can actually just stand and actually meditate while you're waiting for a bus or you're waiting in line for something. So that's a time where you can potentially do some meditation while you're standing. And then walking meditation. This is a method of walking and actually meditating at the same time. It's a very specific way of meditating that I will typically only teach in person because it's kind of challenging to teach on a live stream unless there's somebody actually operating the camera and following me as I'm walking around. But I've used walking meditation, again, if I wasn't able to sit in terms of the body was becoming painful and I needed to walk in order to change the position. I've used it if I became sleepy in other forms of meditation. And because the posture I was using, either seated or lying or standing, I became sleepy and I wanted to become more active in meditation. I used walking meditation to ensure that I wasn't falling asleep. I've also used it in situations where the mind was too energetic and too active. And the last thing that I was thinking about was sitting down to actually meditate or lying or standing, just being in one spot. And the mind needed to kind of get that excess energy out in walking. And I might have just done that as a standalone position and just done walking meditation, or I might have done that for 20, 30 minutes and then switched to seated or lying or standing. So you can actually move with walking meditation. You can keep the mind active. You can keep it awake and you can change the body position so that the body maintains its comfort. And you can even just use walking meditation just to use it because it trains the mind in a different way. It doesn't necessarily have to only be utilized because you can't do one of the other postures. Walking meditation by itself has a lot of benefit. And if you ever learn walking meditation with me, you'll be able to see that it has a unique type of benefit that doesn't necessarily exist in the other forms of meditation. But these are the four positions that we use in order to meditate. And then there's different types of meditations that we use within these four individual positions. But let me just stop here and see what questions you guys have before we move on and talk further about meditation. I have a question on the walking meditation, David. Are you focusing on the breath as per breathing mindfulness meditation or are you focusing on physical sensations in the feet? The place that I fixate the mind is I stare with the eyes about one or two meters in front of me, and that's the place where I fixate the mind. I'm still paying attention to the breath, but the mind is fixated just one to two meters in front of me, not the sensation on the feet. But I have done it with using the sensation on the feet, and the mind does kind of go there a bit, but the main focus is through the eyes about one or two meters in front of me. Got it. So we have a question from Judith. 
she says a person that she knows, a person who claims to know the teachings well, says that the Buddha taught that we must meditate alone instead of meditating with people. Is that true? I've never seen any teachings where the Buddha said who you should be meditating with or who you shouldn't be meditating with. From experience and from practice, I would say 80 to 90% of your meditation should be alone because you need to have that independent practice where you're training the mind alone. With that said, there's definitely help and benefit in meditating with other people as well. It can really invigorate your practice to be meditating with other people. So that's where that 10 to 20% that I share that, you know, if you're going to be doing that kind of meditation, maybe you want to go out and meditate with other people in group setting. But if your meditation practice is dependent or attached to only meditating with other people, then you're only going to be meditating when you're with other people. And that means you still have craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness to meditate with other people. So you need to develop 80 to 90% of your practice alone by yourself meditating. But then, sure, you can meditate with other people. The Buddha meditated with lots of people. He meditated with his ordained practitioners and with groups and with his students. So there's a need and sometimes a cause for meditating with other people. It's not like you can never meditate with anyone else. That would be permanence if you only ever meditated alone. So you need to develop the primary aspect of your practice on your own, doing it by yourself as an independent practice. But there's going to be times where you'll meditate with other people and that's beneficial as well. We have a question from Javier. He says, you can't meditate while waiting for the bus. You need to squint and be alert waiting for the bus to appear. How can that be possible? Depends on what kind of bus you're waiting for, right? And depends on the technology in your uh, city. So there's some buses that sometimes take 20, 30, 45 minutes, an hour to come. And I've been in those situations where I've actually meditated waiting for the bus to come. And some of the cities that I've taken buses on, the bus, when it pulls up, it will have an announcement, an audible sound, or I just know that the bus is coming and it should be the next bus. So when you hear the bus come and put its brakes on, open your eyes and you see it's your bus. So you won't miss your bus, Javier. If you're that deep in meditation in the middle of a city and you just absolutely don't hear the bus come, then that's great. Keep meditating. You're doing excellent. But you should be able to meditate if you're waiting for a bus, if you like. It's not something you have to do. It's not something you're required to do. But you will notice that you'll have certain times that you might not otherwise be thinking about meditation. And I just give that as a suggestion that while you're waiting for a bus, if you've got some extra time, why not use standing meditation and train the mind to meditate? And this will be a different environment with different sounds, different lighting, different things happening around you that will further challenge the mind to actually be able to meditate in that environment. And that can be very beneficial for the mind. So you might want to try it and see how it goes. We have a question from Judith. Would a practice like Roy C. Daton be considered meditation? Lucy Dattan is a yogic type practice where you're actually focused on stretching the body. And yoga itself, you know, involves a certain amount of stretching. But oftentimes people will meditate prior 
to these stretching practices, these body stretching practices, and or afterwards as well. So there's usually kind of a connection between things like lucidatan and yoga and these other kind of disciplines to meditation, but by themselves, they aren't meditation by themselves. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay, so let's move on to the next part that I was interested to share with you guys, which are the different types of meditation. There's four primary meditations that I'm going to be sharing with you guys, and these should be the only four that anyone would actually need. And with those four, there's only two primary meditations that everybody would need. The other two are kind of like specialized meditations that we only utilize in certain special case situations. Now remember, in order to understand the types of meditation that the Buddha taught and why you would actually use them, you need to remember the actual teachings that he actually shared. Remember the primary problem that he talked about, which is craving, desire, attachment. This is that first poison of the three poisons or the first unwholesome root of the three unwholesome roots or the first fire of the three fires. We call them the three poisons, the three unwholesome roots, the three fires, kind of different ways to refer to the same thing, which is craving anger and ignorance or unknowing of true reality. We also refer to them as greed, hatred, and delusion or unknowing of true reality. So that first primary problem of craving or greed we also call it desire or attachment, grasping, holding, the way the mind searches externally for some external satisfaction and it latches on craving permanence. This is the primary problem that the Buddha describes in the Four Noble Truths. When he delivers his first discourse, he describes the primary problem of what causes the mind to be discontent. So the primary practice that he recommends as an antidote to this poison to eliminate craving, desire, attachment is breathing mindfulness meditation. That is the aspect of the mind that we're eliminating. Because remember when we talked about the definition of meditation, we're either eliminating certain qualities or cultivating certain qualities. So in this meditation of breathing mindfulness meditation, we're eliminating craving, desire, attachment, where the mind has this mental longing with a strong eagerness. It wants to hold on. And in that style of meditation, when the thoughts or ideas or perceptions, when the mind goes to the past or the future, we train the mind to let go, let go, let go. Because the unenlightened mind wants to hold on. It craves that permanence. So in breathing mindfulness meditation, we're training it to let go and focus on the breath so that we gain control over this mind and we eliminate this outward searching for satisfaction in these external things. So that's the quality of the mind that's being eliminated in breathing mindfulness meditation as an antidote to this poison of greed or craving. And then what we're cultivating, what we're creating in the mind is we're training the mind to reside in the present moment. Because as long as the mind goes to the past or the future, the mind's going to be discontent because it's having painful, pleasant, or neither painful nor pleasant feelings 
in the past or in the future, right? It's either worrying about the future, having anxiety about the future, or looking for some pleasant feelings in the future, or it's dwelling on the painful feelings of the past, or it's longing for some pleasant feelings in the past. As long as the mind's going to the past or the future, it's going to be discontent. So it's only when the mind is trained to be in the present moment that it can develop this singleness of mind, right? By residing in the present moment with the mind, it can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. But as long as the mind is still having all these erroneous thoughts and bouncing all over the place, it's going to have discontentedness. So in breathing mindfulness meditation, the breath is the present moment. When you're breathing, that's right now. That's the present moment. So that's why in breathing mindfulness meditation, we train the mind to fixate on the breath because that trains it to come into the present moment. So as the mind goes to the past or the future, has various thoughts, ideas, and perceptions, we cut that off or let it go and we bring the mind to the breath, which is the present moment. And the more and more and more and more you do this over repeated sessions, the mind will get better and better at residing in the present moment, not only during meditation, but outside of meditation as well. Because by you training the mind in meditation to do this and gain control over the mind being in the present moment, then in daily life, the mind will just naturally reside in the present moment with singleness of mind or concentration, that focus, concentration, clarity of thought and deep memory. And what you're doing also in this breathing mindfulness meditation is you're cultivating mindfulness. Mindfulness is awareness of mind. So through training the mind to focus on the breath, cut off these thoughts, let them go, bring the mind into the present moment, focus on the breath with this concentration, this focus, this clarity of thought, this singleness of mind, and develop awareness of mind where you're aware of the mind now by doing that in multiple sessions over weeks months and years now you take those benefits into daily life so now when you're in a conversation with somebody or you're working on some project or you're working alone or whatever you're doing in life your mind is in the present moment it's got this concentration focus clarity of mind and you're aware of the mind so if any unwholesome thoughts arise, you can cut them off and let them go. Or you can cultivate these wholesome qualities and maintain wholesome qualities in the mind. That's through mindfulness, awareness of the mind. Because this journey to enlightenment is a purification of the mind, training the mind to eliminate unwholesome qualities and cultivate wholesome qualities. And you're only going to be able to do that if you have awareness of mind. So this breathing mindfulness meditation, there's lots of things that are going on in the meditation in this very simple practice of just sitting, standing, lying or walking and just focusing on the breath or focusing on some fixed location. You're training the mind to eliminate this craving desire attachment where it wants to long and hold on to things and you're bringing it into the present moment with focus concentration and clarity in developing awareness of the mind. This is the foundation of your practice. This is 
what Gautama Buddha was referring to when he said, what's that one thing that leads to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana? What is that one thing? It's breathing mindfulness meditation. Okay. Another really good thing that you can be doing in breathing mindfulness meditation is if you haven't yet allowed impermanence to soak into the mind, you can develop the perception of impermanence. This is the words that the Buddha used. When you're in breathing mindfulness meditation and there's a thought that arises, if you need to soak impermanence into the mind so that you can see that indeed everything is impermanent, except for this mental state of enlightenment, if you need to soak that into the mind, as you see a thought arise, notice that it also ceases to exist. Even if it's five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, eventually that thought ceases to exist and you can develop the perception of impermanence. Or as you're in meditation and you feel some sensation on the body, a certain itch on the skin, you can see that that sensation arises. And then if you don't give it any thought, or even if you do give it thought, it will eventually cease to exist. So this is one of the ways that you can develop the perception of impermanence if you haven't already done that. Oftentimes I suggest that you just walk around and observe everything being impermanent and soak that into the mind, but you can also do it during meditation as well. And just notice, that every single thought, every single sensation in meditation is impermanent. In meditation itself, it can't last forever, right? You have to stop at some point. All of this stuff is impermanent, and that's really beneficial for the mind to soak in impermanence. So that's another thing that the Buddha talked about doing during breathing mindfulness meditation is using it as a way to train the mind to develop this perception of impermanence. The second type of meditation that you need, and these are the only two, is loving kindness meditation. Remember the three poisons, craving, anger, and ignorance, or unknowing of true reality, greed, hatred, and delusion, or unknowing of true reality. Loving kindness meditation is used to eliminate hatred, anger, ill will, and cultivate loving kindness or active goodwill towards all beings. When we talk about the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires, we call it hatred and anger. But when you look at the 10 fetters, which are the 10 things that need to be eliminated from the mind to experience this enlightened mental state, we call it ill will, but it's all the same thing. So to eradicate this hatred, anger, ill will, we use loving kindness meditation to train the mind to eliminate those aspects of the mind. This poison of hatred, anger, this fetter of ill will, what it does is it the unenlightened mind is going to push people away. The mind is going to become hostile, aggressive, angered. It's going to push people away out of your life it's going to block people off. It's going to look for disagreement. And when you, you don't like something and there's something about somebody, either their character, their personality, the way they talk, maybe they're too successful and you, you're jealous about that and you don't like it or some other aspect of their life, 
the unenlightened mind will take exception with that. It won't like it and it will push people away who are disagreeable. And then the unenlightened mind will create a wall and a barrier, not being interested in allowing this person into your life for some reason or another. And this is detrimental to your life because an enlightened being is going to be able to have healthy, productive relationships with all people. You may not agree with what other people are doing. You may not agree with someone being hostile and aggressive to others. You may not agree with that. Or you might not agree that somebody who's murdered somebody, you don't agree with their actions, right? You don't agree with their behavior that they've murdered somebody or they've sexually assaulted somebody or they've stolen from somebody. You might not agree with their intentions, their speech or their actions, but an enlightened being will still have loving kindness for these people, all beings, active goodwill, where active goodwill is a genuine interest and seeing others be well. So if somebody murders somebody or someone is abusing someone sexually or physically or someone's verbally abusing someone or someone's stolen from you or somebody else that you know, oftentimes the mind develops hatred or anger or ill will towards these people or even just somebody who just simply disagrees with you. Oftentimes the mind can develop this hatred, anger, and ill will and create this wall. So we don't have to agree with everybody's intention, speech, and actions, but in order to attain enlightenment, you need to cultivate this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. All beings, everybody, everyone in the world, all human beings, all animals, all beings. You need to cultivate that in the mind. That's what's going to eliminate this hatred, anger, and ill will from the mind. So this meditation is one that we're going to be doing this Wednesday, three days from now. And I've done this already in this program about three or four times where we've focused the mind through breathing mindfulness meditation first, bringing the mind into the present moment, and then going into loving kindness meditation where we're using these affirmations to train the mind to cultivate this active goodwill by using affirmations of things like, may I be peaceful, may I be safe, may I be well, may I be free of discontentedness in the suffering that it causes. And then we expand out from I to a ring a little bit further. May we be peaceful, safe, well, and free of discontentedness and all the suffering that it causes. And then we expand these rings getting progressively wider and wider and wider until you eventually get to all beings. And I've discussed this in detail in the individual trainings that we do. And I've discussed this in detail in the book as well. So there's lots of different references for you to learn this meditation specifically. But what this does is it cultivates this active goodwill in the mind. It's not a quick fix. It's not an immediate thing. And you may not even feel this genuine interest in others being well the first several times that you actually meditate, especially if there's deep hatred or anger in there that's been held over from the past. But any kind of resentment that you have for other people that have harmed you, this will help you eliminate that. Any guilt that you feel for people that you've harmed in the past, 
This will help you eliminate that. Any negative self-talk that you have in the mind that you degrade your own self, you as a person, if you have that negative self-talk in the mind, this will help you to slowly eliminate that. If you have judgment of others or you discriminate against others or you have racism or other stereotypes that you don't like certain groups of people that are in the world, this will help you to slowly eliminate that and dissolve that from the mind because it's hatred, anger, and ill will that is causing that in the mind. And by practicing this meditation regularly, you will slowly erode that from the mind and cultivate this active goodwill where you can now practice loving kindness in daily life. You need to kind of fill up the gas tank with loving kindness meditation over repeated sessions for many weeks and months and years. But then you need to bring that with you in daily life and actually practice treating people with loving kindness, this active goodwill. Because it's not an immediate fix. You can't just meditate and then go out in the world and talk hostile and aggressive with people because that's not translating the benefit of cultivating this loving kindness and meditation into your daily life. So you cultivate this or kind of fill up the gas tank in meditation. And then when you step out into the world, you now start treating people with this active goodwill or this loving kindness. And this is what will slowly eradicate this hatred, anger, and ill will. And again, even if you don't feel it during meditation, and even if you don't feel it in daily life, and it's a real struggle for you to treat your brother or sister or your parents or your life partner or your children or your coworkers, anybody in your life, even if it's a real struggle for you to treat them with this active goodwill or loving kindness, just do it break through that wall because this hatred, anger, ill will, it's going to erect this wall around you and other people. And it's going to kind of look out almost fearfully or neurotically for these are the people that I like and that I feel comfortable associating with. And these are the people that I don't like and I won't associate with these people. And this wall is going to inhibit you. So oftentimes, in daily life, trying to break through that wall is somewhat uncomfortable, and that's understandable, but you'll never get through that wall if you don't break through it. So meditation is a way to start cultivating that in the mind for you, but then in daily life, you got to break through this wall in order to start practicing loving kindness in daily life. And even when it feels uncomfortable, still do it and do your very best, and then it will get easier and easier and easier the more that you do that. So let me pause here with these two meditations before we talk about the other two and see what questions you guys have. We have a question from Rhonda. How do we wish goodwill to all beings, including those that are violent and offensive to others, people who do things like murder and sexual assault? Yeah, so remember what all of these meditations are doing is they're working on training your mind because we can't change other people through our meditation. We can't change them even in daily life. It's only individual choice that each person has to choose to do better things or not. So we can't change that murder. We can't change people that are doing these unwholesome things in the world. We can only change our mind, how we view and think of that other person. So if we harbor 
anger or hatred or ill will or resentment towards somebody for something that they've done that has created harm in the world, it actually isn't harming anybody other than ourselves. So if you maintain that hatred, anger, and ill will, it's going to cause you discontentedness. It's causing you discontentedness. It doesn't help you. It's not beneficial for you to hold on to that hatred, anger, and ill will. So it's only when you cultivate the opposite of that, which is loving kindness, this act of goodwill, cultivating that in meditation, then you can eradicate that hatred, anger, and ill will. It's not going to be a quick fix. It's going to take time, may take you a really, really long time. But the more that you do this, you can slowly erode this hatred, anger, and ill will. And remember, you've got to separate the intention, speech, and actions of this person from the actual person themselves. So you might disagree with them having murdered someone in the world or even maybe somebody that was close to you. You don't agree with that and you don't agree with their actions. But as a person, you've got to get to the point where you can cultivate this interest in just seeing them be well and let go of the hatred, anger, and ill will because it's not going to be beneficial for you in any form or fashion to hold on to this resentment for some actions that they've done, right? So it doesn't mean you agree with them. You know, some people say, I'll never forgive you, right? That means they're holding a grudge and that's only going to harm your own mind. So it's only through practicing this meditation and then practicing in daily life, loving kindness, that you're going to be able to release this from the mind. And it's a slow, gradual process. It's not going to happen overnight. And can compassion help with this point as well, David? Because for someone to be doing these kinds of things, we know that they're not content when they're not peaceful. And not only that, if they are doing these things, they're generating an enormous amount of unwholesome karma for themselves. So how useful can compassion be for this particular point? Yeah, compassion can help you as well. You know, loving kindness and compassion are two separate mental qualities where loving kindness is a genuine interest in seeing others be well, where compassion is concern for others' misfortune, right? Having concern for others' misfortune. So we don't really have a specific meditation to cultivate compassion but through learning and practicing loving kindness meditation, oftentimes compassion comes through with that. And we practice that in daily life. And you'll learn about these four Brahma Viharas in chapter 13, which is only two weeks from now. So in a situation where someone's murdered somebody, again, I don't agree with their intentions, their speech or their actions, but I can still have this genuine interest to see them be well. And I can still have concern for their misfortune. And oftentimes, one of the things that I think about is I think about how not everybody in the world has access to these teachings or even knows that these teachings exist. So someone who's out murdering other humans, they obviously haven't had the opportunity or chosen to step forward and learn these teachings in order to eliminate their discontentedness. Person who murders, has an enormous amount of craving, anger, and ignorance, a self and the ego, right? That's what causes someone to murder. They want something so badly. They have this deep anger and ill will, right? They have this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality of how 
by them causing harm to others, it's causing harm to themselves. And it, there may be a self and ego involved in terms of the murder as well. So cultivating compassion or concern for others' misfortune, oftentimes I just think about how it's unfortunate that they didn't have access to these teachings because if they would have learned and practiced these teachings, they wouldn't have murdered this person, thus destroying life and all the people connected to that life. And they also wouldn't have destroyed their life and all the people that are connected to their life. So that's one of the ways that I cultivate loving kindness and compassion is look at this person as, oh, it's, it's really unfortunate that they didn't have access and they didn't choose to understand these teachings because it would have saved them and a lot of other people a lot of misery, heartache, and harm. But it takes practice. You know, you can't just click your fingers and instantly develop loving kindness and compassion for a murderer, for example. If you have a lot of hostility or anger, especially if it's somebody who's maybe murdered someone that's close to you, it's hard for human beings to cultivate that loving kindness and compassion. But that is what you need to get to. And it just takes time to work at that in meditation and work at that outside of meditation. And one of the things that can be a motivator for you is just to see that there's absolutely no benefit whatsoever, no benefit for you to hold on to that hatred, anger, and ill will. There's just absolutely no benefit for you whatsoever. We have a question from Manal. Teacher David, do you see mindfulness meditation as a finer form of prayer at all? No, I don't. Prayer is typically something that people do in order to, well, there's lots of different ways. There's not just one way to pray, but it's usually asking for something, right? Or kind of connecting into some higher power where meditation is all about training the mind. Now, the interesting thing about prayer is prayer can have an impact to the mind. This is the really interesting thing. What we do in this practice is we meditate and we know that we are in fact training the mind to eliminate certain qualities or cultivate certain qualities. But someone who does prayer and does prayer regularly, they might be praying to God and thinking about certain things, or they might be praying to some other deity, for example, depending on what tradition they practice. Those entities aren't actually creating anything for the person whatsoever. So if somebody's asking, let's just say God, for example, to be kind, to be friendly, to be compassionate, and they're asking God to do that for them, God isn't doing that for them. God isn't going to do that for them. Or this deity that they're praying to isn't going to do that for them. It's not possible. The only way that this person can become more kind, more loving, more compassionate is if they choose to do that for themselves. But what's interesting is that somebody who's in prayer asking for those things and thinking that that's what's going on, they on their own may choose to be more kind, friendly, and compassionate as part of them thinking that they're actually praying for it, but it's something that they're actually interested in acquiring for themselves. And they choose on their own to be more loving, more kind, and more compassionate. So it's not the actual entity of God or some other deity that's actually creating it for them. They're actually choosing it for themselves. It's just the method that they're using is they think they're actually praying and acquiring something, but in reality, they're actually doing it themselves. So in meditation, practicing 
meditation, which also includes right view. If you remember right view, accepting responsibility for your own discontent mind and deciding to make changes. Well, in meditation, we know right view and we know that we are responsible for our own life practice. We're responsible for our own discontentedness. And in meditation, we're taking the responsibility to train our mind because we realize our mind is the problem. That's a more direct route, in my view, that can lead to this awakening to this enlightened mental state. But the interesting thing is, is that people that practice some other traditions can actually get to kind of what we would consider enlightenment, but maybe a Christian would call it the Holy Spirit. And they just have a different path and a different way of thinking about it. So I don't think of prayer as meditation. I think of them as two separate things. But the interesting thing is, is that someone who does pray can actually cultivate loving kindness. They may tell you that God is the one who gave them the loving kindness, but it's not. They actually did it for themselves. So prayer can be a change and a motivator for change in the mind, but it's still the individual that's actually creating the change. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay, so let's talk about the other two types of meditation. Those first two types, that's required for all people. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've been involved in. If you're interested in attaining enlightenment on this path that Gautama Buddha laid out, you will need to learn breathing mindfulness meditation, learn it really well, develop it really well, practice it daily, and ensure that you're moving the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, and cultivate this mind that resides in the present moment, singleness of mind, and cultivating mindfulness. And you will need to learn and practice, develop this practice of loving-kindness meditation where you're eliminating hatred, anger, ill will, and cultivate loving-kindness for all beings or active goodwill towards all beings. Those are the only two meditations that you need. There's tons and tons and tons of other meditations out there that if you looked, you'll find all different types, but they weren't taught by Gautama Buddha. These are things that came after. And oftentimes what can happen as people start this path, because there's craving in the mind, remember the mind is looking for this outward searching. It wants more and more and more. It's not content with $50,000 a year. It wants 100. And then when it gets 100, it wants 150. And then it wants 250 and 350. It's not happy with transportation. It needs a BMW or Lamborghini or Ferrari. It's not content with, you know, one pair of shoes. It wants 20 pairs of shoes and 30 pairs of shoes and 50 pairs of shoes. This is the mind just wanting to add more and more and more. Oftentimes people who are learning on this path, because meditation is something that you can actively do, and a lot of people put a huge amount of significance on meditation when it's only just one step on the path, what can often happen is the mind just wants to learn one more meditation or five more meditations or 10 more meditations and people spread themselves very, very wide. They might know 20, 30, 50 different meditations and they think that all these meditations have all these different purposes. But in reality, what you really need is just these two breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. And by bringing your mind into focus on just these two 
of what you need, then you can deepen your practice within each of these two meditations and get lots and lots and lots of results or benefit. Whereas if you just generally know 20, 30, 50 different meditations, you're not really deep in getting the benefit out of those meditations. So if you focus on what the Buddha actually taught that is truly needed to attain enlightenment, you can just focus on those two meditations of breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation, and that will allow you to really deepen that practice more and more and more. But if the mind is still craving, it might want another one and another one and another one, thinking that if I just get one more meditation or five more or 10 more, that you know this big tool belt with all these tools is gonna lead to some beneficial result. But in reality, these are the only two that everybody actually needs. Well, once you get those very well underway, and I suggest that you first start with breathing mindfulness meditation for two, three, four weeks, get that really well established, then bring in loving kindness meditation. Once you get a habit and a practice where you're regularly meditating with breathing mindfulness meditation over a consistent period of time, doing one, two, three times a day, then you can kind of bring in loving kindness meditation as a way to further your practice because you know that breathing mindfulness meditation isn't the only solution. You need loving kindness meditation as well. That would be the way to kind of ramp up your practice. Starting with breathing mindfulness meditation, two, three, four weeks, build your dedicated practice where you've got a habit of meditating daily, and then slowly bring in loving kindness meditation. Well, now once you're doing that for an extended period of time, a few months, you're noticing benefits probably within the first couple of weeks of practicing in this way. You're gonna notice benefits pretty much right away. But then after two or three months of doing this and getting this underway, if you wanna start focusing on some other things, you might need these other forms of meditation. And typically, this is where you'll be working really closely with a teacher by this point, and you'll be asking for further help. Because the other style of meditation that you may need is what I call meditation to eliminate sexual cravings. Gautama Buddha called it developing the perception of repulsiveness of the body. That's what he called this meditation. I call it meditation to eliminate sexual cravings because you know, you probably don't look at the human body as being repulsive, right? But if you read the Buddhist teachings at different times, he talks about the human body and describes it as being very dirty and kind of almost disgusting. He doesn't use that word. He uses the word repulsiveness. Because if you think about the human body, we've got urine and feces and pus and sweat in, you know, spit, saliva, blood. We've got this smell that comes out of the body, right? It's, it's kind of repulsive if you kind of look at what the human body really does. We do a lot to care for this human body. It's, it's a lot of work, you know, getting the hair cut, you know, keeping the eyes clean, the skin clean, cleaning up all the different areas of the body, to attending to our medical care. We spend a lot of time in our life, you know, not just caring for the physical body, but doing things like eating. That's to care for the body, cutting our fingernails, cutting our hair. You know, if you wear makeup or 
you go shopping for clothes, all these different things we do to kind of beautify the body. And that's because we kind of have to, right? If we didn't do those things, the body is pretty repulsive with all the different functions and aspects of the body that we experience. So the Buddha says the reason why we have sexual cravings is because we don't see the body as it truly is. It's that unknowing of true reality. We don't see the body as it truly is. Essentially, we've got this bag of skin, and inside this bag of skin, we've got bones, we've got muscle tissue, and pus, and blood, and sweat, and bowel, and all these different fluids, and different things in the body. We don't see all those things. We see this outer layer, and that's where our central pleasure, our desire for central pleasures gets agitated and it kind of becomes active. And that's where this sexual craving comes from because we see the beautiful hair and the beautiful scents and the beautiful clothes. And we are interested in sexual activity because we don't see the body as it truly is. And that's where our sexual cravings come from. And we're interested in this sensual pleasure because we feel a certain amount of pleasure in engaging in sexual activity. Well, that craving for sexual activity, it can go pretty heightened to the point where someone may have many different partners or someone craves a certain type of sexual activity, maybe with minors, or they might be interested in forcing people to have sex, or they might go to prostitution or sexual workers and spend an exorbitant amount of money. They can really destroy their life and relationships that they have if they indulge in so much sexual activity. Of course, the Buddha gives us teachings that if we're going to have sex, we should have with just one person, abandon unchastity, right? We talked about this in chapter seven. That would be a way to practice sexual activity with just one person and ensure that we're not harming people through our sexual activity. But if you're experiencing this deep craving of sexual activity where the mind is having this obsession of sexual activity where it goes beyond just this wholesome activity with just one partner. Maybe the mind is craving more than one partner or maybe it's craving sex with minors or it's craving to force people to have sex with you or it's craving sexual workers or any of these other things, even masturbation. If you're having excessive masturbation, you can use this particular meditation to eliminate sexual cravings, which will help you to see the body as it truly is. You will eliminate this unknowing of true reality and start seeing the repulsiveness of the human body through observing the body as it truly is. The way that you actually do this meditation is you get a picture of a corpse that is partially dissected and you open your eyes and you stare at this corpse while you're actually meditating. So instead of looking at a physical body that is beautified, you're looking at the lungs and the heart and the blood and the bones and the skeleton, these kind of things. And this can really help you to see the body as it truly is and start to develop this understanding of the repulsiveness of the body. And it will help to slowly diminish your sexual cravings. The way that people do this, like I mentioned, is either by a picture of a dissected body, which you can easily find these days on the internet, 
Here in Thailand, in some of the stores, they actually sell laminated versions of these to help you. Another way that people do this is actually meditate with a dead corpse. There are certain environments where you can actually be with a dead corpse. So like here in Thailand, if someone dies, they will keep the body at the temple for usually about three days. And if you're able to do that, that adds kind of like another level of depth to help you understand the repulsiveness of the body because you can actually meditate with the actual corpse close by. And if there's any kind of smell or odor, it will only kind of deepen your repulsiveness of the human body through smelling the actual dead corpse. You can also go to anatomy labs where you can actually see dissected bodies and they'll let you pick it up and touch muscles and bones and organs and different things like this. You can actually pay usually a small fee to go into some of these anatomy labs and actually see a person who's donated their body to science and it will allow you to come up close and personal with a dead corpse. So you can use pictures if you like, but if you really want to deepen it even further, you can actually come in contact with an actual dead corpse in these different settings in these different ways. I'm going to change the slide for a second, but anybody who's got a, a weak stomach, just know that I'm about to project an image of a dead corpse on the screen. So if this is something you're not interested in seeing, you might just want to look away for a bit. But this is how you can become comfortable with developing the repulsiveness of the human body is having a picture like this and actually meditating with your eyes open, looking at this actual corpse. And this is how somebody can start seeing the body as it truly is rather than looking at the body in a beautified state and having these extensive sexual cravings, by meditating in this way, you will develop the perception of unattractiveness of the human body. These are the Buddha's actual words here, where he says, the perception of unattractiveness should be developed to abandon lust, right? This is one of his phrases talking about how to actually do this meditation. So you can get this kind of picture off the internet, which I got this one off the internet, or there's lots of other places that you can do this. And this will help you to reduce and ultimately, if you're interested in actually eliminating sexual craving from the mind 100%. And this is something that you on your own need to choose when is the right time to do this. You know whether you have an excessive amount of sexual craving and this will be beneficial for you. And if you need help with this, you can ask questions and I will help you learn it more and more, maybe in like a personal session or questions in the Facebook group or other places that you can engage with me to learn this meditation more closely. Or if you're at a point in your life where you would like to completely and entirely eliminate sexual craving from the mind, because one of the fetters in order to attain enlightenment is to eliminate central desire. It's the fourth fetter of the lower fetters. Now might not be the time that you're interested in doing that, but if you're having challenges to eliminate sexual cravings, to eliminate that fetter of central desire, this would be one of the ways that you would do that, is using this meditation. And that's why it's a specialized meditation that not everybody needs. 
because in order to eliminate sexual cravings, not everybody needs to do this meditation. Some people can eliminate sexual cravings without this. So that's why this isn't really needed by everybody. It's just used in specialized situations where it might be beneficial for you. So this is a meditation that you can do if you choose. And if you need help, just let me know. The fourth style of meditation is one that I'm sharing with you that Gautama Buddha never actually shared, but it's one that I found highly beneficial in this practice. I call it meditation to realize non-self. I don't necessarily know that the Buddha didn't share this, but this isn't something that's in the Pali Canon or the Pali text. This is something that I discovered and kind of realized on my own and it really, really, really helped. So that's why I share it. As you may remember, as part of the 10 fetters, the very first fetter that needs to be eliminated in order to even move into that first stage of enlightenment is the mind needs to realize non-self. Essentially, the mind needs to eliminate the self. And there's a progression of how to do that. This isn't something that you would undertake at the very beginning of your practice. Because at the very beginning, you're learning the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts. You're developing your meditation practice of breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation. You're learning about the three poisons, the natural law of gamma, what is merit, a lot of these other things. But as you start getting all of that underway, and you're starting to get closer and closer to what we call the jhanas, which are just before you get to enlightenment, you'll notice certain aspects of the mind and the mind getting deep, deep, deep in meditation. You'll start experiencing these jhanas. And that's the time when you should be working very closely with the teacher already, because you probably wouldn't have gotten to the jhanas by yourself. You would have needed help in order to kind of get there. But as you're starting to kind of peak at enlightenment and starting to get these little glimpses, you really need to actively work to eliminate the self in order to realize non-self. And that comes with intellectual learning, first understanding what is the teaching of non-self and learning how to practice non-self in daily life. But then also there's this meditation practice that I'll share with you that can be really beneficial to work with once you get to that point where the mind has started to experience the jhanas and it's starting to be time to focus on the 10 fetters and move into the first stage of enlightenment. This meditation to realize non-self, there's already been the intellectual learning and there's already been a lot of reflection. There's already been a deep life practice established and the mind is already working with a teacher. And now what you can start doing is you can start doing breathing mindfulness meditation as you've already been doing for many months or years at that point, then you can move into this meditation to realize non-self. And this is where you do the same thing like you did with loving kindness meditation with affirmations, but instead of affirmations to cultivate this loving kindness, you're using these affirmations to eradicate this self from the mind. And what you would do is in meditation, quietly in the mind, repeat over and over and over again, I am not the body. 
I am not the body. I am not the body. On each out breath, just keep repeating it over and over and over and over and over again. And then when you're finished with that one, move on to the next one. I am not the mind, right? I am not the mind. I am not the mind. Repeat that over and over and over and over and over again. And then there is no self. And remember, there's already been some intellectual learning and reflection here. So this statement is going to have more meaning to you at that time when you're actually ready to start using it. There is no self. There is no self. There is no self. Repeating that in affirmations like we do in loving kindness meditation very slowly on each out breath. Then the fourth affirmation is I do not exist, right? There's a physical body. There's a mind, but there is no I. But remember, there's intellectual learning and reflection before you get to this point. So this statement will have more meaning at that time. And you repeat that over and over and over again. I do not exist. I do not exist. I do not exist. Then the fifth one is repeating these entirely as one affirmation over and over and over. I am not the body. I am not the mind. There is no self. I do not exist. I am not the body. I am not the mind. There is no self. I do not exist. And you repeat that over and over and over again. What this does, once you've done all the foundational work in order to get there, is it develops what the Buddha calls the perception of impermanence should be developed to eradicate the conceit, I am. Conceit is arrogance, right? This self is part of the ego. There's two fetters that relate to the ego. It's the personal existence view, which is the attainment and realization of non-self. And there's the fetter of conceit, this arrogance or pride or comparing and measuring that you're above or below people. The Buddha called this conceit of I am, like I am so great. I am so wonderful. I am the best, right? This is going to lead to problems if you think this way. So in order to eradicate the self and eradicate conceit, you need to work on many aspects of your practice, but just one aspect of that is this meditation to realize non-self. And again, there's a lot of preliminary work that you need to do in order to get to this point. If you just sat down in the first couple of weeks or first couple of months of your practice and tried to do this, it's not going to be helpful for you because you haven't done all the foundational work and preliminary work to actually get there. So normally what you're doing is you're working really closely with a teacher by this point, And the teacher has made sure that you understand the teachings of non-self very, very deeply, that you've reflected on that very deeply. You're starting to connect a lot of the aspects of the teachings. And now it's actually time to perhaps suggest this meditation for you to help you realize non-self. Again, not everybody's going to need this in order to realize non-self. You can actually realize non-self without this meditation, but this is one way that I've used to help students to eliminate the self is through using this meditation, but there's a right time to actually use it. And it's going to be later in practice 
after there's been a lot of preliminary work already. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about either the meditation to eliminate sexual cravings or this meditation to realize non-self. We have a question from Judith. Would this elimination of sexual craving be linked to some sort of aversion towards the body then? I can't see clearly the difference between craving and aversion. I don't understand why a corpse is disgusting. I see it as the normal decay and impermanence. Why should we feel disgusted? Yeah, that word disgusted was kind of like my words. You don't need to feel disgusted about the body. But let's talk about the first part of your question too, about the difference between craving and aversion. So craving is the outward seeking for satisfaction. The mind has this longing, this strong eagerness. What aversion is, is pushing people away and pushing things away, creating a wall between you and others. So that's the difference between craving and aversion. One is an outward searching for satisfaction, trying to bring something closer to you, where aversion is pushing something away from you and creating a wall. The difference between developing unattractiveness of the body in order to eliminate or reduce sexual cravings, it's not aversion. It's not pushing something away and putting a wall between you and that. It's just seeing the true reality of the body, seeing the body without all of this beautification, without the jewelry, without the makeup, without the beautiful hair, without the clothes, without the wonderful scents, without all these different things that we do to beautify the body, just seeing the body as it truly is in its unbeautified state, its unattractive state. And that will help to eliminate the mind's interest in this extreme sexual craving because we're usually craving another person's physical body for sexual pleasure because we see pleasure in the actual body. We see it as beautiful. So by developing unattractiveness of the body, now the mind's going to have less of a tendency to have craving or desire for that body because it no longer views it as beautiful. It sees it as unattractive. When we're looking to practice one of these last three meditations that we've talked about here, you often teach us to start with breathing mindfulness meditation. Do you have any guidance as to when we should transition into one of the other three meditations? It's totally a personal feeling. It might be a couple of minutes or it might be 20, 30 minutes. It really depends on your mind and where your mind's at on that particular day. The reason why we do it that way is because oftentimes when the mind first starts to meditate, there's chatter, it's busy. And if you were trying to just go right into loving kindness meditation or the meditation for sexual cravings or this meditation for a realization of non-self, if there's a lot of chatter in the mind, you can't really focus it and hone it on the goal of loving kindness, elimination of sexual cravings or realization of non-self. So the breathing mindfulness, the meditation is a nice way to move the mind into singleness of mind and eliminate the chatter so that now you can really focus on cultivating loving kindness or eliminating sexual cravings or realization of non-self. So it really helps to deepen your practice and get more benefit out of the subsequent meditations. Now, I certainly have sat down and just done loving kindness meditation by itself before. And I've done some of these others just by themselves before. 
but I don't notice the same level of benefit as when I lead in with breathing mindfulness meditation. So these type of things that I'm sharing with you that I noticed in my practice, again, you shouldn't believe me. You shouldn't believe anything that I say. And what I'm sharing with you is my observations and my experiences as a way to help you to deepen your practice and kind of see how to get more benefit. But don't necessarily just take my word for it. If you'd like to do loving kindness meditation by itself for like a week or two or three and see how it affects the mind and then do breathing mindfulness meditation leading into loving kindness meditation for a week, two or three and then see the benefit for yourself so that you can see the truth. The only reason why I can share this with you and I know that this is the case for me and my experiences is because I've tried it many different ways. The reason why I know these four positions of meditation and why I would use them and why I wouldn't use them in various situations is because I dabbled and I played with them and I tried different scenarios with all these different four body positions. So what I'm sharing with you is wisdom that I've gained in this path, but you shouldn't believe it. You should do it yourself in all these different ways and see what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And then you'll have it as wisdom that you won't just be blindly following me, but you'll be able to see it for yourself as truth so that then you have the wisdom for yourself. Okay, thank you. We have a question from Linda. I do not crave sexual interaction, the physical part of it. I like when a man compliments me, but I do not wish or think about physical sexual interaction. Is liking a man's interest still seeking sexual interaction? It sounds like you have more of a craving, desire, attachment, kind of a longing with a strong eagerness for the attention. What you're sharing is that you don't have a craving for the sexual aspect of it, the actual intercourse or some kind of bodily pleasure. There's no pleasure that you're looking for or seeking with the physical body. It sounds like it's more of a mental thing for you. So it doesn't sound like you have a craving on that level of central desire, but it's more of the attention that you are seeking and interested in. So that itself is a craving, but it's just not a sexual craving. Where, David, would that fall against 10 fetters? Definitely in the unknowing of true reality. To answer Max's question, let me make sure everyone knows what we're talking about. There's these 10 fetters. There's the lower fetters, and then there's the upper fetters. There's five lower and five upper. And the first three stages of enlightenment, you're working with these five lower fetters and you're either eliminating or thinning these five lower fetters. But to get to that fourth stage, which is actually when the mind's truly enlightened, you have to eliminate all 10 fetters. So if you've already moved through the first, second, third stage of enlightenment, having eliminated the five lower fetters, then the five upper or what you're going to focus on to get to that last stage. And we call it a fetter or a taint or pollution of the mind. It's these 10 attributes of the mind where the mind has pollution. It's not until the mind gets to that fourth stage as an arahant that the mind is enlightened and discontentedness is 100% eliminated. The mind, even in the first, second, and third stage of enlightenment, are still going to experience some discontentedness. It's only the fourth stage that it's completely eliminated 100%. So in those upper fetters, 
the last fetter is what we call ignorance or unknowing of true reality. And this is almost like a catch-all. This is where somebody who will deeply understand the teachings, have deep wisdom in the teachings, and not have any delusion or unknowing of true reality whatsoever. So to me, I feel that all craving will map into that, Max, into the ignorance or unknowing of true reality, because if there's any kind of craving in the mind whatsoever, there's still unknowing of true reality. The mind still doesn't realize that it's causing itself to be discontent and it hasn't eliminated this from the mind. But these other fetters, they do have certain cravings like desire for form, desire for formless. Uh, Some of these other fetters are cravings in and of themselves, like central desire is a craving in and of itself. But in terms of craving in general, I look at it as part of that ignorance because it's not until you get to enlightenment in that fourth stage as an arahant that all craving is 100% extinguished. And it's only when all craving is 100% extinguished that you no longer experience discontentedness. So I would think it would be appropriate to say that all craving is part of that unknowing of true reality. But we call it out in the three poisons as a separate poison. Okay, thank you very much, David. We have no more questions at the moment. Okay, so this next part that I would like to share with you is just how to kind of get started in conducting meditation. Some various aspects of this chapter that further go into what you need to be understanding and learn in order to actually practice meditation on a really deep level. The first thing is, to understand that the mind is the boss and the body is the employee. The reason why I use this is because this is the reason why we look to keep the body comfortable during meditation, but not luxurious because the body is the employee. If the employee is luxurious, then that means everything is complacent, right? So if the body is too luxurious, we can't get to the boss. We can't go through the employee in order to get to the boss because the employees are too luxurious and they're just relaxing and they don't want to take you to go see the boss. But also if the body or the employees are too uptight and too painful, you're not going to be able to get to the boss either. So that's why we need to bring the body to this comfortable position where it's comfortable but not luxurious so that we can access the mind or access the boss through this employee, which is the body. So we can train the mind when we use the body to come into one of these four positions. And that's how we get access to the mind or to the boss. I go into more detail in this in the book and you can see it in there. But if you guys have any questions on this from your reading, let me know and I will help you with it. One of the other things that Gautama Buddha talked about in relation to meditation is setting up mindfulness in front of you. He talked about this prior to meditation, you should set up mindfulness in front of you. Mindfulness is awareness of mind. The way that I've taught in this program to set up mindfulness in front of you are things like go to the bathroom, empty out the organs, if you need to do a little bit of a stretching or whatever. And then we go into chanting as this kind of buffer to kind of ease the mind into meditation, becoming aware of the mind and aware of the breath as we ease into meditation. I've taught the way that I do this 
and you can use that if you like, but you may have some other ways that you choose to do this as well. It's totally up to you, but you need to do something in order to ease the mind into meditation, starting to build this awareness of mind prior to meditation. That's called setting up mindfulness in front of you. Then I also talk in this chapter about timing, frequency, and schedule of meditation. One of the things that some of us have been brought up with is that there's kind of like a set time every day that you might have prayed or something like this, or a set time to do something or a schedule. A lot of people work their life off of a schedule. But what you have to understand is that there is no permanence, right? If you tried to create a schedule that you're going to meditate every day at 8 a.m. and every night at 8 p.m., you're never going to be able to stick to that permanently. It just doesn't work. So if you tried to set up a schedule for yourself like that, you're almost setting yourself up to fail because you're going to not be able to meet that and you might feel guilty or shameful or you might have some discontentedness associated with that. So I suggest that you have some general times, like I'm going to meditate in the morning, the middle of the day, the evening, and then ensure that you do that. But in terms of setting a fixed schedule, you're going to find that you're not going to be able to permanently do that. So it kind of doesn't make sense to kind of set a fixed schedule, unless you're just trying to block time out of your schedule so that other people don't schedule something with you. When you actually meditate, there's no amount of time that you need to set an alarm for. One of the things that people do is they oftentimes will set an alarm prior to meditating. And what I observed with this is that the mind will typically sit there in meditation and it'll crave, you know, is it 30 minutes yet? Is it 30 minutes yet? Is it 30 minutes yet? Or is it one hour yet? Is it one hour yet? Is it one hour yet? We're trying to train the mind in breathing mindfulness meditation to eliminate that longing with a strong eagerness, that craving, desire, attachment. So if you set an alarm, it oftentimes will make the mind crave whether or not it actually is at that point in time yet. And what you'll notice is if you get rid of the alarm, that your meditation will be more beneficial because you're not focused on time, you're just focused on the results and getting the benefits out of meditation. So if you set an alarm, you're gonna notice that it's probably going to create and produce craving in the mind. It's better to just meditate and whatever happens, happens. You just meditate for however amount of time that you need. And setting an alarm is kind of like trying to determine the future. Like you really don't know what you're going to be doing 30 minutes from now or an hour from now, like right now. You kind of have an idea, but you don't know for sure. So if you tried to set an alarm for meditating and saying you're going to meditate for an hour, you don't really know that you're going to be able to do that. So you're either going to fall short of that and maybe feel guilty or shameful that you've done so, or you're going to be really deep in meditation, getting all kinds of benefit and then the alarm is going to go off when you could have gotten more benefit if you didn't have set this alarm. So rather than sit there and crave what time it is, rather than falling short or needing to go longer and the alarm goes off, it's better to just get rid of the time entirely because there's really no benefit in keeping track of how long you're meditating each day. I've heard of some people that will compare, right? It's like, James, how long are you meditating for? Oh, 
only 45 minutes? I do an hour, man. You, you're not even meditating if you're only doing 45 minutes. This is like ego, right? This is arrogance. And this is comparing one person to the other when this is really an independent practice that you should be on your own independent journey. It's not about keeping track of your time and comparing it to other people and being prideful and so proud about how long you're meditating. What you should be going for in meditation is the benefits, the results of meditation, not keeping track of the time or frequency or something like this. And I think you'll find a lot more benefit that way. Oftentimes in meditation, the mind can become sleepy. And if you notice this, there's a couple of things I can suggest for you. One is proactively ensure that you're getting a lot of rest and make sure you're getting enough rest for the mind and the body. If you're noticing that every time you meditate, you keep falling asleep within 5, 10, 15 minutes, then it means that the mind and the body probably isn't getting enough rest and you need to ensure that you're getting more rest. So rest. But you have to also make sure that you're getting your active, dedicated, purposeful training sessions in where you're either eliminating certain qualities or cultivating certain qualities in the mind. So if you're noticing that you keep falling asleep, but you would like to extend your meditation sessions, that's where you can move to standing or walking meditation. And these will help you to stay alert and attentive during meditation. If you're noticing physical sensations during your meditation, I don't suggest that you scratch them or you give any attention to them. What you can do with those is you can train the mind to not be affected by the physical sensations. And you'll notice that if you do that, you'll get longer and longer periods of time where you don't feel like you need to attend to these physical sensations. Oftentimes when you're first starting to meditate, you might feel a little itch or a little tickle or something like this and you feel like right away you want to scratch it. Well, if you don't do that and you maintain your focus and meditation on the breath, this can help you to further train the mind so that you can control it. And what you'll notice is over time you can elongate for longer and longer periods of time that the mind is unaffected by these physical sensations. You can notice that they'll arise You'll feel the sensation or the tickle or whatever it is, and then it will cease to exist. But you can maintain your focus on the breath during meditation. And this can be very beneficial for the mind to have this level of control. You may even have mosquitoes or flies or things like this that will come around you when you meditate. If you can allow those things to happen and not swat the fly or the mosquito and maintain your control, on the breath because the fly mosquito is not going to hurt you just let it be or if a fly lands on your nose and starts walking around for example just let it be right this can really help you to gain control over the mind another thing that can happen in terms of physical sensations is you might notice certain sensations in your head while you're meditating you might notice that there's a lot of pressure at different times in your head or you might feel like your head is expanding or contracting while you're meditating. Some people call this, it feels like your head is the size of an elephant. Well, when you're meditating over the course of your sessions, they've shown in neuroscience that in short as two weeks, there's actual physical changes happening in the brain during meditation. 
the mind is not the brain and the brain is not the mind, but there are physical changes that are happening in the brain as one meditates and as you cultivate these teachings in your daily life. Things like generosity and loving kindness and compassion and things like this. There's physical changes that are happening in the brain and you might feel those sensations while you're meditating. You may even get a lot of pressure on your forehead or right here in the middle of your eyebrows, what we call the third eye. If you notice this, it's completely normal. You haven't done anything wrong. In fact, things are going very, very well if you're noticing these kind of things. They're not permanent, but you may notice them for a period of time in your meditation over several weeks or months. They may come and go out of your meditation. Just know that it's normal. You're not going to die. You don't need to run out and see a doctor. It's just a normal thing that happens as there shifts and changes in the mind and the underlying physical structures of the brain are starting to change. You're going to notice these physical changes and sensations in the body during your meditation and perhaps even afterwards as well. It's completely normal. And then the last thing here is some people will meditate with external stimulus like music or gongs or beads or things like this or apps even on the on their phone or something like this these things have been used and oftentimes people will use them to kind of start up their meditation practice but i suggest that you get away from these things as soon as possible because as long as the mind is attached to a phone app or somebody speaking and guiding you all the way through meditation or some beads that you're counting while you're meditating or music or gongs or something like this, as long as you're using those kind of things, the mind isn't focused on the present moment, which is the breath. It doesn't mean you can't ever use these things, but 80 to 90% of your practice should be the way that I'm sharing with you here. But if occasionally you go to a gong meditation or occasionally you meditate with some music or occasionally you do something else, that's fine. That can really invigorate your practice. But 80 to 90% of your practice should be without external stimulus. It should just be the body, the mind, and the breath. Only these three things you should develop your practice where that's the only three things you need is the body, the mind, and the breath because you're gonna have these three things with you all the time until your last breath in this life. So if you end up in the hospital or you're out hiking in the mountains or you're at a friend's house or you've gotten stuck somewhere and you can't get back home, rather than going for the music that you have set up in your meditation room or that special candle that you always light. If you attach your mind to these certain things, those external stimulus are impermanent. If you base your meditation practice on music or beads or a candle or some other external stimulus, you can't have those things permanently with you. So therefore, if you base your meditation practice around that, when you're in situations where you don't have those things, you're going to be at a loss and not be able to meditate. 
So that's why you need 80 to 90% of your practice, just the body, the mind, and the breath, so that way there's no attachments in your meditation. You have no longing and strong eagerness for music or beads or somebody guiding you constantly or all these other things. If you've been doing that stuff now, okay, that's fine. It's led you to where you are, but now it's time to ramp your practice up deeper and deeper and deeper so that you can start eliminating these external stimulus from your practice and deepen it to the point where it's just the body, the mind, and the breath. Any questions on any of these? We have a question from Linda. If I choose to meditate in the morning, how do I not worry about being late for work? There are some exceptions, right? There's nothing here that's permanent. So I suggest that you generally don't use timers or alarms. But if you need to actually get out of the house and go do something, then sure, set up an alarm. But maybe in the middle of the day or the evening, you don't need that alarm, then don't use it. I've talked to some students recently who they get like a 30 or 45 minute break at work where they can actually meditate. And they asked if they can use an alarm there. Sure, go for it. Use the alarm in those kind of situations where you absolutely need to be going somewhere and do something. But as a general rule on things like the weekend or in the evening, things like this, if you don't use your alarm, what you'll notice is you'll get more benefit out of the meditation session. I sometimes come across people and influencers online who are cautious about meditating or cautioning others against meditating because they believe it can be dangerous for some people in certain situations. I think this is a misconception, but I'm interested, David, what guidance you would offer to someone who was concerned that meditation could be dangerous to the mind. The only situations that I've ever seen meditation be dangerous is when people attempt to develop a practice without a teacher. I've had students who have come to me having attempted to develop their own practice and they didn't have any teacher, any guides whatsoever, and they got into a lot of trouble, a lot of difficulty in the mind. There is actually one particular person that I'm still trying to help that has developed obsessive compulsive disorder where their mind just constantly, constantly has repetitive thoughts because for a year or two, they were using YouTube videos and podcasts and things like this to develop their practice without a teacher whatsoever. And somehow they ran across me and now they're asking for help and guidance. And this particular person is having a lot of trouble, even suicidal thoughts and deep, deep depression. They're actually a doctor, a medical doctor, and they haven't been able to practice medicine for over a year or two. So their life is just spiraling down because they don't have an income. They can't take care of their family. And this was all precipitated from trying to develop a practice without the guidance of a teacher. So that when their mind started having challenges, they didn't have anybody to reach out to and help. So that's the only situation that I've ever seen meditation be problematic is when someone does it by themselves and on their own without guidance. But otherwise, there is no contraindication that would hinder somebody or hurt somebody from actually doing meditation. If somebody's saying that meditation has problematic things that happen, it's because they haven't had the experience of deepening their practice with the guidance of a teacher to understand the true benefits that come with guidance and 
fully training and developing their mind with the guidance of a meditation teacher. So I don't agree with that advice that there's a problem with meditating or that somebody shouldn't meditate. In my view, everyone in the world should be meditating and they should all have teachers to help them do that. But if you don't have somebody to help you, if you're just relying on YouTube videos or an app or something like this, things can generally go kind of well, but there's some situations where you're really gonna get into a lot of trouble because you can't ask the app questions, you can't ask the YouTube video questions. And as the mind starts to awaken, it's almost like unraveling a ball of yarn. You've got this mind, this unenlightened mind that's bound up really tightly like a big ball of twine. And when you start meditating and you start unwinding it, it can kind of unravel really quickly, almost like a like springs jumping out of a can. And when that mind starts to unravel, if all you've got is YouTube videos and an app, you don't have anybody to help you in that situation. So by you seeking guidance from a teacher like this, as the mind starts to slowly unravel and you're kind of noticing things, you've got a relationship with somebody that you can reach out to and say, hey, I'm experiencing this. Is this normal? Or what do you suggest here? What do you suggest there? I'm noticing this. Could you offer some guidance to help me? And that's where a teacher really comes in benefit because even if the only thing I say is, yeah, that's normal, keep going, that reassurance and that confirmation can be really helpful. Whereas if you're off on your own, trying to awaken the mind by yourself, you can run into a lot of trouble and a lot of problems. Because remember, the only person that would be able to do this by themselves is an actual Buddha. And the last one currently known to the world existed over 2,500 years ago. So that means everyone else needs teachers and guides. But the thing with our Western culture is everybody wants to be independent. And the thing with this information age, with YouTube videos and apps and everything like this, a lot of people think that they can do this on their own because they don't understand that you can't awaken the mind by yourself. It is impossible to do that unless you have teachers and guides or you're an actual Buddha. And the last one was 2,500 years ago. So people can run into a lot of trouble. And if they've experienced that trouble or they know somebody else that has, and they don't realize that the reason why they're experiencing that trouble is because they don't have a teacher and guide and they're not a Buddha, then they might look at meditation as problematic and a problem. But that's not because meditation is truly problematic. It is because they're unknowing of true reality. They still have ignorance, delusion around these teachings, and they haven't experienced the wisdom and knowledge that they need to truly develop a deep practice. Okay, thank you for that. We have a question from Rhonda. I have heard of people using drugs to meditate, but I see this as heedless use. Is this right thought? I agree with you, Rhonda, that any kind of substances that cause heedlessness, it's not walking towards the light. It's not going to produce enlightenment or awakening of the mind. It's actually going in the other direction towards the darkness. An enlightened being is not going to take substances that cause heedlessness. There's no substance that is going to create the wisdom that one needs in order to attain enlightenment, a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So when people say they're using substances to deepen their meditation, 
again, it's unknowing of true reality, it's ignorance, it's delusion, and they're just not realizing that they're actually making their problems worse because their mind is now losing awareness of mind. They're losing mindfulness or awareness of mind. So a enlightened mind and someone who's truly dedicated and walking this path to enlightenment isn't going to be taking substances that cause heedlessness. Meditation is the medication for the mind. So through meditating and training the mind, that's what's going to improve the condition of the mind, not substances that cause heedlessness. Okay, Pips, that was our last question for now, David. Okay, so I only have one more thing to share with you guys, and that is to never, ever, ever give up on developing your meditation practice. There's times, particularly at the beginning, but also in the middle, and also as things progress further and further, that they can get challenging and they can you can kind of struggle or feel like your meditation practice has kind of plateaued and that you're not getting quite the benefit that you once experienced in your meditation practice. But don't ever, ever give up. Because if you give up, we know that your mind surely isn't going to improve. So if you're finding your meditation practice is a struggle or it's challenging or you're having things happen that you don't understand, reach out to me as your teacher and I will help you. If you need personal guidance, I think you guys know that I have appointments where you guys can schedule. It's offered openly and freely to all of you guys where we can chat by text or audio or video and we can talk and it's almost like we're sitting in the same room with each other and I've been helping a lot of people this way. So don't ever, ever, ever give up and just keep working on developing your practice from now continuously for the rest of your life. It's a life practice. If you don't ever attain enlightenment during this lifetime, that's okay. You're going to get closer and closer and closer to enlightenment and your life is going to gradually improve. And should you need to be reborn, you're gonna be reborn in a better position. But if you actually attain enlightenment, your mind is gonna be so peaceful, so calm, so serene, so content and so much joy, you're never gonna experience discontentedness ever again. And I don't know about you, but you should be willing to go to the ends of the earth in order to acquire that. Of course, without craving desire attachment, without that mental longing and a strong eagerness, but there really is no other goal, no other objective, no other interest on the face of this earth that is more important than you attaining enlightenment. Whether it's that job title that you want, whether it's that income that you want, whether it's the car that you want, whether it's the relationship that you want, whether it's the clothes that you want, all of these wants are not gonna lead to permanent, peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. All of these wants are impermanent. They're gonna constantly come and go, come and go, and come and go. But through never giving up and progressing on this path to enlightenment, you will slowly, gradually move towards this enlightened mind where there's complete peace, calmness, serenity, contentedness, and joy that is permanent. And no matter what you're doing in your life, no matter what you're studying for, no matter what your occupation is, no matter what daily activities you do on a daily basis, 
you investing time, effort, and energy to learn and practice these teachings will ensure that you're making progress on this path. And you should never, ever, ever give up. You might take certain hiatus for a week or two. You might kind of slow things down a bit, kind of catch your breath, but then ramp it back up, right? That's understandable. But don't ever give up on learning and practicing this path because where it's going to lead you to is better than anything you leave behind. You know that there are certain things that you need to give up, right? You give up stealing, give up sexual misconduct. We give up lying. We give up substances that cause heedlessness. Ultimately, if you decide to go all the way to the end of the path, giving up sexual contact and all of these other things that we're eliminating from our life practice. But all of that stuff that you're giving up pales in comparison to that which you're going to acquire. Oftentimes, as you're progressing on this path, you might get focused on all these things that you're giving up and you feel like you're giving up so many things. But what I would encourage you to do and motivate you to do is look at what you're acquiring. Don't look at the things that you're giving up and think that you're giving up so many wonderful things. Because what's really wonderful about drinking alcohol, feeling funny and giddy and sociable for a few hours, but then feeling with a headache and miserable and hungover later, that's temporary. What's really wonderful about smoking weed or some other drug that has a temporary high, and then when you come out of it, things are more miserable than when you actually were before? Or what was so wonderful about having sexual misconduct, sleeping with lots of different people? Or what's even so wonderful about sex by itself? Sure, it's pleasurable. It makes the body feel pleasurable, but it's still temporary. It still wears off. This enlightened mental state that you're working towards, it's permanent. And once you acquire it, it's never going to go away. So this wisdom that you're acquiring along this path, it's never going to go away. So don't ever, ever, ever give up. So I'll leave you with this last statement in which Gautama Buddha shared, which is meditate bhikkhus. So meditate students. Do not be negligent lest you regret it later. This is my instruction to you. So you need to develop this meditation practice because you can't meditate your way to enlightenment. You're going to need other teachings besides just meditation, but you wouldn't be able to get to this enlightened mental state without meditation either. So while it's a fundamental requirement and important aspect of your practice, there's also other aspects of your practice that you need to learn and understand as well. And that's why we've got this entire program to really help you learn and develop your wisdom around these teachings. But meditation is absolutely very, 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 very important. It's one of the most important, if not the most important thing that you can develop in your life practice. But there's other things that go along with that. So don't ever give up. So let me just pause one final time to see if there's any remaining questions before I say goodbye to you guys. We have no questions, David. Thank you very much for your help. Okay. So I would just like to thank you guys for joining today. 
I appreciate your interest and dedication to learning and practicing these teachings because through you learning these teachings and practicing them, developing this wisdom, you're going to see the truth and the mind is going to gradually improve more and more and more and your life is going to gradually improve more and more and more. The more that you learn and practice these teachings, the more that you're going to improve your quality of mind in your life and the people around you. They're going to experience these improvements with you as well. You're going to notice your personal and professional relationships are going to improve. And through you doing that, you're actually benefiting the entire world because you're putting out less and less harm in the world. So this benefits all of humanity. So your meditation practice, why we say it's developing your practice, it's benefiting you, but it's also benefiting all those people around you and all of humanity. So it's the single best, most important thing that you can be doing is developing this meditation practice each day. And if you miss a day here or there, don't beat yourself up. Don't feel guilty, but just keep on moving and keep going. Even if you miss two or three days, don't feel guilty. Don't feel shameful. Just rededicate yourself and keep going because this is the very best thing that you can be doing for yourself, those around you, and all of humanity. So thank you for joining. I appreciate your interest and dedication to learning these teachings. We'll see you on Wednesday, which will be loving kindness meditation. We'll actually go through and teach you loving kindness meditation. And then next Sunday, we're going to be talking about cultivating non-clinging, teaching you how to identify attachments. Because as you should know by now, craving, desire, attachment is the primary problem that Gautama Buddha discovered and that we're working to eliminate. But how could you actually eliminate attachments if you don't know how to identify them? So next Sunday, the chapter is devoted to identifying your attachments. It's a very short read. It's only a few pages. So that should give you plenty of time this week to work on developing your meditation practice and then moving into chapter 12 next Sunday. So I'll see you either on Wednesday or Sunday at 9 p.m. Thai time. Until then, have a lovely day and we'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.